Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the latest tactical and strategic news from the war and look at Boris Johnson's address to the Ukrainian parliament. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 3rd of May, day 69. And today, I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols and Deputy Foreign Editor Theo Mers. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the front line. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been a... A weekend of uh, a, lot, a contested front line, the, the line of control through the Donbass and across the south. Um, it carries on the, the movement of last week when there was a lot of sort of push and pull, small tactical successes, particularly in the centre of the Donbass by Russia, where they finally seem to have got their um, combined arms manoeuvre together. They are operating under a, a barrage, under a, an umbrella, if you like, of, of artillery. Um, but what that means is that they're only... They're only moving forward at about uh, two to three kilometres a day. That that figure was given by uh, Western officials and by uh, US uh, Department of Defence officials. So so two to three kilometres a day, not not ideal at all. In the north, Russia's under under extreme pressure. Ukraine has had a, a, a continued their success from last week around Kharkiv to the north and to the east, putting huge pressure on that line, that logistic supply line down from from uh, the Russian border down into the Donbass. So so it would be very interesting to watch that area to see if if um, if Ukraine are able to to cut off that. That resupply route, which is a massive ask, actually, they said themselves it would take about a brigade with about another brigade's worth in um, in reserve. So a huge ask. But if they were able to uh, to cut that line or force Russia to use routes further round to the to the east, that would be a significant advantage there. Um, in the south, more pressure uh, around um, Mikolaev and um, and Hezon, and there have been the 
the very, very small number of evacuations from the Avastal plant uh, in Mariupol. I mean, only uh, yesterday, 100, we're told 100 got out and they're en route now to Zaporizhia, should be arriving uh, today, sort of lunchtime is today, if not early afternoon, they may already be there. Um, that was uh, brokered by the by the UN. Um, and uh, But that's a very small number. There's thought to be hundreds of civilians left in the plant and uh, and thousands i mean in tens of thousands if not over a hundred thousand civilians left in what's left of mariupol city so still still very uh, very contested very very grim um but we can talk a little bit later about quite what this very very slow advance in the in the center of the donbass might mean for russia but i'll just pause there before we talk about boris johnson's uh, address to the ukrainian parliament theo do you have do you have anything to add to that Yes, just uh, following on from what Dom was saying about the evacuations from Mariupol, very small numbers of people, only around 100 uh, going to Ukraine, also around 50 being taken into Russia. And that's particularly tiny in the context of the number of displaced people that we've been talking about over the weekend or, or that we've heard about from the Russian side. Of course, we know that millions of refugees have fled Ukraine to the West, uh, to to Europe and elsewhere. But over the weekend, Russia said that uh, a million people have been, quote-unquote, evacuated from largely the east of Ukraine into uh, the the Russian Federation. Of course, they have framed this as as being for their as being for these people's own safety and security that they want to come to Russia. Um, that they're fleeing the conflict in the in the same way that other others are fleeing to the West. Though Ukraine has earlier said that hundreds of thousands of people are being taken into Russia, the majority of them against their will. They're being taken. Some of them used as hostages, might be used as in prisoner exchanges. Many of them being taken to what they call filtration camps that are, are not labour camps and are not comparable to the gulag or or anything like that but uh, where they where they're taken before being passed on or sent on into other areas of russia largely we're hearing economically depressed areas of russia where um uh, more workers uh, are needed so in in that context in uh, what else the the other figures we've, we've been hearing from the weekend the number of evacuations from the steel pipe plant in Mariupol are really, really small. Thanks, Theo. Um, I'd like to come back later potentially to this issue of uh, forced evacuations from Ukraine, because it's something we've mentioned a few times, and I think there's a lot to say. But firstly, we know that Boris Johnson has just uh, just addressed the Ukrainian parliament. Um, what did he say, and how did it go down? So he's been speaking literally in the, la- the last few minutes. Um, the first, as you say, first Western leader to be able to uh, speak to the Ukrainian parliament since the war started on the 24th of, of Feb. Uh, and he's been telling them, this is a quote, that uh, um, though your soldiers were always outnumbered, three to one it is now, he says, they fought with the energy and courage of lions. You have beaten them back from Kiev. You have exploded the myth of Putin's invincibility and you have written one of the most glorious chapters in military history and in the life of your country. So, you know, st- stirring stuff, as you'd expect from um, from Boris Johnson, I mean, a, a, a great, a skilled orator um never mind all his other faults but uh yeah he speaks speaks exceptionally well there is criticism here in the uk for for our overseas listeners that it that um that he's making 
this speech in the week of the of some fairly tricky local elections, but uh, it is what it is. He, he was invited, and he's uh, very very happy to uh, to speak to the to the Ukrainian Parliament. Um, I mean, it underlines that the, the close international ties, not only between Britain and uh, and Ukraine, but also this this un, unwavering support, and long long may it continue. So this will go down well uh, in Kiev. It will go down well in the in the international community. It will uh, underline yet again for Russia um, that uh, that. That Britain is is just a you know, stooge of the West, and we're, we're the ultimate evil, and we're propping up this Nazi regime. But hey, let them let them have their let them have their fun. They were talking about underwater nuclear missiles, explosions at the weekend. So that yeah, they they have these little flights of fancy. Um, but no, this is this is good diplomatic stuff, and we should we should pause and um, and maybe t- lift our eyes a little bit from domestic politics uh, and say that this is this is it's good that, that a Western leader does this. On the back, of course, last week when Nancy Pelosi, the uh, Democrat. Um, leader of the house uh, house of representatives in the us um was uh, was was in kiev meeting mr lensky and for went for a walkabout so you know, just that steady drumbeat of western leaders showing uh, overtly showing support um, can only be a good thing and how did it go down in, in the Vakovna Rada in the Ukrainian parliament? I can see some of the pictures of standing ovations and parliamentarians holding union jacks well i, I yeah that that says it all really i mean the fact that they're there, um, there are now these memes of of Saint Enlaw um, to go alongside Saint Javelin, the anti tank missiles. Uh, yeah, this is this is this is good diplomatic stuff. Um, it'll play very well uh, in Bor- for Boris Johnson. Uh, he's had a street named after him in uh, in Ukraine. So yeah, this is this is good diplomatic stuff. We should we should you know pause the pause the dipl- the um, the domestic political jibes for a moment, if you like, and, and say yeah, this, I'm pleased to see the, the a world leader doing this. Anything to add on that, Theo? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that uh, this is the first time a, a Western leader has addressed the Ukrainian parliament directly since the the start of the conflict, as you say, because we've seen so much of Zelensky addressing uh, parliaments around the world and, as we've mentioned before, always tailoring his speeches to the uh, to the parliaments that he's speaking to, or the 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 politicians that he's speaking to um, in the in the US, he he mentioned Pearl Harbor, I think, in um, when he was speaking to Germans, he he talked about the Holocaust, and of course when he was speaking to the UK, he uh, there were echoes of of Churchill in his speech, which uh, Boris Johnson has. Um, has given back in his address to the Ukrainian parliament talking about uh, this being Ukraine's finest hour. So we may see more Western leaders now now following on and, and speaking with Ukrainian politicians directly. And there was also an announcement of a new £300 million package of uh, military aid for Ukraine. Uh, Dominic Nichols, can you tell us about that? And what's, what's in it and what could it do? A new three, uh, £300 million pound announcement for a lethal aid. So this includes some electronic warfare equipment, um, armoured, at least a dozen armoured civilian vehicles, which would help with um, mainly on the humanitarian side. Um, counter-battery radar, so the MAMBA counter-battery radar. So this is a radar that sits alongside your your um, artillery batteries and, and stares at the sky and sees uh, the uh, artillery coming towards it and can then work out through uh, through physics and thank god i did my o-level physics i can hang on by my fingertips here can work out the the point of origin of those rounds so if you're if you're quick enough um you can return fire and hopefully uh, destroy those artillery positions the um 
the, the defence watcher, defence analyst Nicholas Drummond, I spoke to last week for the for the long read on our artillery in uh, in the Telegraph. He said that these days, you know, if you are not moving, if you're not shooting and scooting, and you're gone from your position within 180 seconds, so three minutes, uh, you, you can you can expect return fire to land uh, land where you are. So the counter battery radars are absolutely critical. Uh, for that, and it also shows how self-propelled artillery um, is, is also the the the, um, the 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 equipments you want to go for, rather than the necessarily the towed artillery. Towed artillery, like the American M Triple Seven, very very useful, very powerful. But anything that that needs to be hitched up and and moved and can't move under its own steam is is always going to be at a slight disadvantage. But that's that's interesting. The Mamba counter battery radar, thousands of night vision devices, and we've spoken before about uh, this this curious. Uh, happenstance that, that that Russia just seems to not want to fight at night. It, it just doesn't seem to have the night vision devices across its its personnel and um, and and vehicles, including air vehicles, um, to to have a coordinated effect at night. So that's very interesting. That uh, not only that they are not, but but that's another another small area where Ukraine might have the the slight tactical advantage. Uh, and also drones. And this was interesting. This this talk of. Um, Drones for logistical resupply. Now, this is this is an idea that's come around um, for the last few years about about having um, unattended ground vehicles as well as unattended air vehicles and and actually surface and subsurface uh, underwater vehicles as well. Getting drones to do resupply, so just physically carrying ammunition or medical supplies or, or food and water, petrol or lubricants, that kind of thing, and also possibly bringing out casualties. Um, so it's an interesting development in, in recent years. And of course, what, there's no reason why drones should be excluded from that uh, this area of research, and, and they're not. So uh, I've been speaking to uh, Keith Deer, who's the, the, the boss of Airbridge Aviation. He's, he, they've, been, um, they've been involved with this for a little while. Um, and uh, what, what they've been suggesting is they did some work with the US, US Air Force, actually, uh, repurposing Predator C for Syria, for uh, for um, uh, logistic resupply or humanitarian aid for Syria. And they called it, they changed from Pred C to Angel One, um, almost literally the drone equivalent of turning swords into plowshares. Uh, other areas of research, I know BAE Systems have been looking at this, DARPA have been looking at this, and it, and it's, uh, it's a, an area ripe for development. So Airbridge Aviation, uh, Mr. Deer, Keith Deer's uh, company, they've been, they've been working with uh, various partners. They're, they're looking at the two vehicles in particular, the Air Environment T20, which is a smaller drone, can carry about sort of 30 kilograms of, of uh, material. You know, not a, hu- not a huge amount, but if you keep it going all night and they're fairly quiet and if you can't see them, they've got a low radar cross-section, so they're hopefully not going to get shot out of the sky, you can, over time, uh, bring in a lot of resupply. They're also looking at another a company called Singular Aircraft that, that make the Flyox One. This is much larger, so this carries about a thousand kilograms at a time, and, that, and then you're into serious numbers. So you can really take a, a, a lot of uh, move a lot of kit around. Obviously, the, the bigger it is, the more obvious it is to anyone who might want to stop it getting there. But um, it shows the development pathway, um, and of course, the thing to do is if these if the if the airframes themselves are fairly cheap. Um, and easy to produce, easier to produce. I know they're never easy to produce, but you you could then come to a decision. If you have aid flowing in, um, you could come to a decision about whether you want this stuff to come back. So what I mean is, look at Mariupol, look at the Avastar plant there. If you had um, an aircraft like the Flyox one, which can take about a ton, a ton of stores, um, if you just flew it there, you know, straight to the X, flew it into the ground, 
crashed it. You know, you're, you're not going to bring it back. I mean, you're, you're much more likely to get it there because you don't have to evade Russian air defences on the way out again. And if it's if it's heavy stuff, as in ammunition, you could just fly it straight to the uh, straight to the defenders. Um, yeah, medical equipment and um, and what have you might be might be a bit more fragile. But the point I'm making is there's a, this is a whole new area of research. Um, that has been that ha- had a little bit of a look I- in Syria and in, in recent years and other sort of humanitarian responses, but particularly in Syria in in a conflict zone, and and then they're now being boosted. It's kind of on steroids. So so this new money from um, from the UK that the Prime Minister announced, some of it will go into this research, and uh, and it, and it's just ripe for exploitation. Um, I chatted to, to Keith there. He said this is he hopes this is going to catalyse innovation in the sector, and I think it absolutely will. So so. Uh, Drone resupply, um, humanitarian and potentially lethal military aid, uh, an area to watch, I'd suggest. Thanks, Tom. That's absolutely fascinating. I don't know if you have anything to add on that, Theo. And if, if not, no worries. I th- thought that was very comprehensive. Um, and then we can talk a little bit about this, uh, this diplomatic row between Russia and Israel. Yes, this is because over the weekend, uh, Sergei Lavrov, the, the Russian foreign minister, um, said that being Jewish is sort of no um, no guard against anti-Semitism. And he he said this because Zelensky himself has Jewish heritage. Um, and this has been a, a fairly obvious attack line against Russia when it says that it, its aim is to, to denazify Ukraine. Um, but people rightly pointing out that the leader of the country... Is Jewish, so which makes the this idea particularly bizarre. Um, so yes, Lavrov at the weekend said that just because he's Jewish doesn't mean that he or his um, or his officials are not anti-Semitic, and he suggested that Hitler was was part Jewish. Um, to to back this up, Israel obviously extremely angry about that comparison calling in the the Russian ambassador and Israel and and Russia traditionally have uh, closer relations than than Russia and other many other western countries that's partly because there's such a large ethnically russian or, or russian speaking population in Israel many refugees and emigres from the from the Soviet Union, there, so is Israel's leadership uh, needs to keep that that Russian population on side, as well as, well as other areas of of mutual interest in in the Middle East. Um, so that is, uh, it may have alienated a, or Ru- Russia may have alienated a, uh, if not exactly a partner, but at least one country that wasn't going so far to condemn its actions in Ukraine. Thanks, Theo. And there's also, I thought, rather interesting news um, from from an economics perspective that Slovakia is going to try and seek an exemption from any oil embargo of Russia. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it seems like we're moving closer to an embargo. And why why is Slovakia doing what it's doing? Well, it's Slovakia and Hungary that have both said that, or reportedly said that they would... Um, avoid any embargo coming from the EU and that's because they're both so reliant on Russian energy in the case of Slovakia and and Hungary and in the case of Hungary it's because they're politically they're politically closer to Russia Orban 
um, has in the past aligned himself with with Putin. They have similar uh, cultural um, or similar, in some ways, political agendas, similar cultural agendas, both very anti-LGBT, very culturally conservative politicians that in some ways have set themselves up against Western against Western uh, liberalism. And it's interesting, this um, division, I suppose, within the EU about how to respond to Russia in an ongoing way. And even today or or earlier over the weekend, uh, officials in Kiev were alleging, we don't don't know whether this is true or not, that Putin informed Hungary of his plans to invade Ukraine in advance and suggested that Hungary might be able to take a part of Ukrainian territory. I mean, this is just what um, Ukrainian officials are are saying. It does seem slightly far-fetched, this idea that, that Russia offered Hungary a, a chance to, to carve up Ukraine. But there's certainly this, this idea that there are, within Ukraine, that there are countries that are, are, are warmer um, or more, more supportive, such as the UK, hence Boris Johnson being invited to speak to the Ukrainian parliament today. And then other countries in, in Eastern Europe, like Hungary and Slovakia, that are looking for ways to work around sanctions and work around embargoes against Russia. And it'll be interesting to see how those uh, divisions develop or, or whether they can be reconciled. Thanks, Theo. I thought that was very comprehensive. Um, Dom Nichols, can we go back to what you were saying about some of the strategic uh, and tactical analysis from the current fighting across the line of control? Um, we had a very interesting article in The Telegraph that said that the Russia, in the Russian retreat from Kharkiv, um, they were particularly casualty-averse, uh, displaying casualty aversion. What, what does that mean, and what does that show us about Russia's advance at the moment? Well, casualty aversion, as the, as the phrase suggests, is, is, a, is a, an unwillingness to... or fear. I mean, once you cross from unwillingness to fear in a military force, you've got big problems, because, I mean, nobody wants to be a casualty. No-one wants to take casualties as, as a commander. But it's it's a... It's an inevitability, and and part of your responsibility as a commander at any level is to not uh, unnecessarily risk the lives of the men and women in your charge. Um, And if there's a lack of belief in those that that are doing the fighting, that those coming up with the plans are not... uh, making that a very very high priority or simply not good at their job then it it just it drains morale it absolutely saps the will to to go forwards if you're not sure of the people behind you as in the the command structure um and you have your doubts about the people to your left and your right if they are newly newly sort of um produced conscripts or or new reserves i mean they might be Fantastic! I, I, I served with um, some very, very capable reservists uh, in my military career. So, so just being a reservist in, in and of itself is not a is not a bad thing. But it's the quality control mechanism that you that you're not sure of. And if you're not entirely sure, you get a, you get a new bunch of, of fresh troops in because you've been fighting hard now for six weeks. Uh, you get a new new bunch in. You're not sure who they are, if they're any good, if you can rely on them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And once that seed of doubt enters your mind. Um, it just puts a slight, a slight halt to your uh, to your advance. It makes the boots a little bit heavier 
when you're going forward and if that if that belief takes hold in a unit or formation uh, and you become casualty averse so you don't you are no longer you're no longer con- primarily thinking about what you're going to do to the enemy but you're thinking about what the enemy can do to you then then you've lost the psychological edge to go forwards um, and to take ground and that is that is catastrophic for a for a fighting force um, now we've been at this thing since February the 24th uh, those who have actually been doing it, I'm thinking, you know, the Russian soldiers, they will have you know, literally first-hand experience of what's been going on. They will have, um, I would have thought, all of them. Maybe that's a bit a bit much, but the vast majority will will have entertained the idea that uh, that either their army is not quite as good as they thought it was going to be, or the Ukrainians are much better than they were expecting, or a bit of bit of both. And they might now be thinking is this such a good idea? And if you put all these things together, um, doubts about um, your your ability, the people around you, um, doubts that the opposition aren't, aren't going to be quite the walkover you expected and you were told they were going to be, combined with not really trusting your superiors, not feeling that they've got your best interests at heart. And your best interest is not always to, to not go into combat. Sometimes you, You've got to be aggressive in these actions. Otherwise, you know, to, to, to roll backwards is sometimes the worst thing you can do. So if you have all these doubts playing on your mind uh, and it stymies your advance and you're looking for someone else to take the initiative and they're looking for someone else and they're looking for someone else, then it just grinds everything to a halt. Um, we've we've seen this, we've seen evidence of this since day one, really. I mean, remember we were talking about why were so many uh, Russian generals getting killed and the, the suggestion was that they had to go forward to impose their personality on the, on the battlefield and on the operations to get people going literally there's only so much you can do via via radio and, and via sort of trust in the chain of command sometimes the the commander needs to go forward and start sort of you know giving it the blood and guts um and it, it seems like we're now we're now seeing that on a on a on a broader scale in the donbass it, it, there's it should lend itself more to to maneuver to physical movement uh, being able to use your your military forces rather than just sticking to um, to defined and, and paved routes, uh, Russia seems reluctant to get off those paved surfaces. The ground is better. It's not. It's not ideal yet for cross-country manoeuvre, but it's better. Um, so it, they should be able to put together um, a more impressive operational performance. Whereas we've seen very, very tactical advances. Like I say, Western officials, the US DoD are saying two or three kilometres a day. I mean, this is not. This is not the breakthrough that they they should be able to achieve. Even if, as as has been suggested, they've been feeding in the reconstituted troops piecemeal. That was the, the quote given by by uh, uh, officials, rather than having newly trained, newly formed um, units and formations. So it suggests that they're that that they're not the strength, not at the strength they they would wish. Um, the heavy use of artillery is is what we'd expect from Russia doctrinally, but also suggests that that it's kind of making up for a little bit of movement so if you're if you're not moving on the ground it's it's very easy or or it's very um the next best thing is to try and is to try and hold that position through the use of artillery and other indirect fire uh and and so all it all speaks of a of of an of this advance this push this main objective in the donbass kind of running out of steam it's um it's far, far too early to say it's been somewhat pegged by the response from um 
I mean, by the staunch response from the Ukrainian forces, but I mean by the by some of the equipment that's now flowing in from the west. That's not all there yet, or the heavy artillery is not all there yet. Um, but at the moment, it looks like Ukraine are are holding. They are ceding ground for um, for tactical advantage or for operational advantage, I sh- should say, allowing the the small tactical successes um, in order to to move to better positions. So Russia are not making the advances that they that they really should be and they have demonstrated in some area limited tactical success so the fact there's not that's not carried out across the whole force does speak of, of that something else is at play and it, and it could be this idea this this idea of being casualty averse i don't think the the commanders will be they've not necessarily shown themselves um to to, to care that much about the cost the human cost in their actions um, but they've also shown themselves to be not very good at planning military operations. So, uh, yes, we could we could be seeing a, a reluctance at the right at the very front from those troops doing the doing the fighting um, to to advance. And and if that is the case, then that is very very serious for Russia. Thanks very much, Tom. I've got a couple of questions from listeners, um, and I think this can go to both Theo and Dom. Um, this is a question, um, I don't have the name, unfortunately, but, it's, but the, the, our correspondent writes, as awful as it may sound, given satellite imagery, etc., why wouldn't the Russians make a more determined plan to cover up mass graves? Um, I think this is in reference to the numerous pictures we've seen over the last few weeks of um, allegations of mass graves dug near Mariupol. Um, what do you make of that? I think um, they haven't made more of an effort to to hide it because... How Russia is explaining this? Uh, Russia doesn't doesn't care how the West perceives this war. Um, I mean, if it if it cared at all what the West was going to say or do, it it wouldn't have invaded. It cares how a domestic audience perceives it and how how they see it is, and or how they are, how these massacres in in places like Butcher are reported to them are either as as western fakes that it's the the un or the the us going in there with with uh, bodies of people already dead and sort of laying them out on the floor to take pictures and frame russia and um set russia up as this international bogeyman or they're saying that ukrainian forces ukrainian neo-nazis did this and so it justifies their own their own invasion. So I think that it's slightly it's it's a, it's a good question, but it, it sort of misunderstands how how Russia reports this war and and what it cares about here. And it it knows that it or Russian state media, the the Kremlin, know that they will will be able to to spin this in ways that make it pal- palatable to the domestic audience. And there are relatively few. Russians, especially now, especially now that so much independent and online media has been shut down or, or blocks in Russia, there are relatively few Russians that are getting their news from Western sources or independent sources, and they're getting it all from state media, where there's more or less rolling coverage of how any atrocities are caused by Ukrainian Nazis or or by the West fighting a, a proxy war. So I would say that is why they're not making more of an effort to cover up what's going on. Thanks, Theo. Anything to add to that, Dom? Well, I was just going to say, I think, I think Theo's hit it, hit it on the head there. It's, it's, it's under the banner of they don't really care, but also 
the audience that they do care about, the domestic Russian opinion, they just won't have access to this stuff and the little bits that they, they, that they might find um, is through the prism of state media, which, which will blame, blame someone else or deny it. Uh, very, very few people will actually have, have access to information such as we do over here. So no, I, think, I think it's under the, under the banner of they're just, it's just not, not that important to them. It's not a, it's not a priority. Do either of you have anything to add um, from developments over the weekend that we haven't talked about yet? Just want to finish up. Um, last week we were talking about this visit of um, General Valery Gerasimov, the head of the, the whole Russian armed forces, um, who was sent down to Ukraine. We, we weren't sure if he was going to take command of the operation or, or, or if it was a morale-boosting visit or quite what it was. But um, it now seems like the, the, he did go down for a few days last week. Um, I, Accompanied to that, there seems to have been a glaring operational security faux pas, foobar, if you like, from uh, from Russia, because the the headquarters that he visited, just south of Izium, was, was hit by Ukrainian multiple launch rocket system attack, a number of casualties, including the tenth Russian general to be killed, uh, General Simonov, who was an electronic warfare specialist. Um, Gerasimov, there were reports that Gerasimov was injured. I don't think that was correct. Um, it was suggested that he was hit in the leg by shrapnel. I don't think that is correct. And he was um, uh, believed to have flown back to Belgorod that afternoon, so Belgorod inside Russia, and then from there back up to Moscow. But it, it, So the, the, the reports of him visiting uh, almost certainly true. Um, the reports of, of the of the of the uh, that meeting being being hit by Ukraine, we think is is credible and true as well. Uh, we don't think that um, that that Grasimov was injured, but it does. It, as I say, it just underlines the opsec issues, that the operational security issues of um, uh, that, that Russia seemed to be having. Thanks, Tom. Anything from you, Theo, or shall we go to um, your final thoughts of what to look for um, and uh, what we should be aware of in, in the coming week? My my other thing from from the weekend is the the thing that we'll be looking out for this week so I'll, I'll do both of those at the same time i'm i'm really interested in these a million people who have left ukraine to go into russia and i really want to know what they're doing and where they are now and that's certainly something that that we're looking into and there has been some reporting about that in the in the western media and of course some in russian state media saying that they all were desperate to come to Russia from terrible Nazified Ukraine and, and are having a much better time in, in Russia. So it would be good to get some independent reporting on that. And it's something that we're going to be pursuing on the foreign desk and with our correspondents. But I think this story, perhaps more than anything, has really brought it home to me how hard it is to cover... Uh, what is happening inside Russia now without correspondence in the country. And this has happened, as you know, um, uh, this happened a couple, of, a couple of months ago or about six weeks ago that our Moscow correspondent had to leave along with almost all other Western media after Moscow brought in a new law that can jail journalists for up to 15 years for spreading fake news about the the war effort obviously the the russian definition of fake news about the war effort is extremely broad and that's done for our journalists own safety and most other organizations have made similar calls there are very few western journalists there but it just means it's really really hard obviously to work out what is actually going on and where these people are and what is happening to them now. So we're going to 
try our try our best with contacts on the ground with reporting remotely and hope, i hope build up a, a much fuller picture of where those people are now well do come back and talk to us again when, when we have that because i know that's that's a subject that we're getting lots of questions on from listeners so thank you very much Thea. Um, and we, le- we look forward to, to hearing more on that. Um, Dom, would you like the final words this week? Thank you. I- I'm going to be watching the strategic messaging coming out of Moscow this week. We've got uh, May the 9th uh, coming up. Uh, not, not many days left. Uh, I'm v- almost certainly not going to be... Uh, Putin's not going to talk in terms of any kind of victories anywhere, but, but, but we've talked about how he might use it to, to broaden the war or, or explain that it is a war and then call for mass mobilisation and so on and so forth. Um, so this week will be, I'm expecting, more more messaging. But at the same time, Russia, yet again over the weekend, as we mentioned at the start of this, has shown that they, they just they just keep getting it wrong. I mean, this stuff Lavrov was, was saying about about uh, Hitler and, and Nazis and, and Zelensky and all the rest of it, I mean, they've just alienated Israel, a country, as we, as we mentioned before, had been a bit cool about how to respond to, the, to this war so far. And, you know, if, they, if Russia had played it a bit more, yeah, been a bit more cute about it, they, they could have found a, a, you know, a soft ally there. Just, and, they've, and they've got it wrong again. And I just, I just find it extraordinary that I just... Lavrov's been around probably, probably for too long, I think. I think he's... I think, and the whole establishment there, I think it's just, I think it's just old. It's tired. It, it just doesn't know how to, how to move, with the times, with with the speed of, of pace that things are happening today. They're just sticking to these old lines of Nazis, and they're going to set off a nuke underwater. And I was like, oh come on, guys, can you come up with something better than that? And I just don't think they can. So I'm going to keep a, a good eye out on the strategic messaging this week in the run up to May the 9th. But I'm, I'm really not expecting anything particularly sensational just quickly before we finish dom i know you, you had some you've been reading that russi report about what may the ninth might may contain um are we any closer to understanding what what putin might say well uh, no is the short answer um i think he's going to play it very close to his chest and 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 uh, try and sniff the political wind um whew, horrible expression i do apologize um, in the run-up to to May the ninth, so so no, I think he he will couch it in a very positive way, whatever whatever he says. Um, but but like I say, I think they are behind behind the curve here. That they, they don't have the initiative. I mean, if there's a parade through Kiev on May the ninth of Ukrainian tractors, I mean, how is Russia going to respond to that? It's a brilliant piece of trolling. I really hope it happens. Then that yeah, how are they going to respond? I I can't see. How Putin is going to frame this in any way to be to be to be a, a positive, um, but but no, what he's going to say we don't know. But I think it will be fairly tired, fairly fairly old hat, and we'll just look at it and go, yeah, okay, <laughs> same old, same old. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Alice Heary. Ukraine. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.